This podcast is presented to you by the Center for Congregational Health, whose mission is to help faith communities and their leaders thrive. Healthy congregations can transform their communities to be more compassionate, faithful, and just. Utilizing a network of highly skilled coaches, consultants, and intentional interim ministers, the Center supports congregations and ministry leaders to address the challenges they face. Visit their website, healthychurch.org, to learn more about how the Center can be your trusted partner in ministry. Since 2016, CBF has brought you over 100 episodes of interviews with authors and practitioners for conversations that matter. These stories of creativity and innovation have garnered weekly support from around the United States and the world. We are inviting you, the listeners, to join us in connecting with the podcast. Become a monthly listener supporter and receive some perks, including name recognition on the podcast, questions for upcoming guests, free books from the podcast, joining the podcast for an interview, and a VIP experience with the General Assembly podcast guest. There are five levels of listener support, starting at $5 per month. For less than the cost of a pumpkin spice latte, you will be featured by name on the weekly podcast episode. For more information and to join the community of listener supporters, visit cbf.net slash podcast support. This is the CBF Podcast Conversations. Each week, we are bringing you stories from across the world of people doing groundbreaking and innovative work in renewing God's world. Ideas, stories, and creativity from practitioners, ministers, thinkers, authors, and more. I'm Andy Hale, your podcast host. We're excited about another year of delivering interviews worth your time, attention, and collaboration. This platform is not designed for you to listen on an island unto yourself. Share your insights, thoughts, and feedback from the podcast with us on CBF's Twitter, Facebook, and Instagram pages. We also want you to join the CBF podcast community through our CBF podcast listener support page at cbf.net backslash podcast support. We see you, Tucker, Georgia, Warsaw, Poland, San Francisco, California, and Sydney, Australia. First-time listeners and long-time listeners, we are grateful you are here for the conversation. We want to give a special shout-out to some of our listener supporters, including Cynthia Foldendor, Bill Johnson, Ralph Stocks, and that anonymous person that keeps giving a gift in honor of CBF Brown. And before we move on, we want to give a word of gratitude to our three annual sponsors, the Center for Congregational Health, McAfee's School of Theology, Doctorate and Ministry Program, and the Baptist Seminary of Kentucky. And now, on to our conversation. Our guest for this week's CBF podcast conversation is Dr. Todd Bolsinger. He's the author of Canoeing the Mountain, the Vice President and Chief of Leadership Formation at Fuller Seminary. He now joins the Rarified Twofer Club, joining the podcast for the second time. Todd, thank you for joining the conversation. It's nice to be with you, Andy. Thank you for having me. Well, um, you know, a lot has changed in our world since we had you on in, in, in 2019. Uh, there's the obvious year of the pandemic, but before we get to that, um, what's been going on with you in the last two years? Well, the pandemic. <laughs> I mean, I mean, it's actually been interesting because I, tra- I was traveling around the country 100,000 miles a year talking to people about uh, leading through change, and then the world changed really dramatically, and all of a sudden, 
Um, not, I now wasn't traveling, but I was doing these things called Zooms and podcasts. And um, I ended up speaking to more people in 2020 than I had in 2018 and 19 combined, all from my own house. Talk about a changing world, right? Yeah. Well, certainly saves on a jet lag internally. <laughs> for yeah, sure. indeed, indeed. But well, I miss know, a lot you... of good meals. Uh, you know, a lot of times I go to these great places and people would take me out to lunch and they'd be terrific. So, yeah. Yeah, yeah. Well, you know, uh, you're also kind of at the academic level as well. So, you know, how, is, how has this pandemic changed the way that y'all have approached um, theological education? Yeah, so it's interesting, you know, um, not only have we gone through change, but actually I went through a change too in my own role. So um, the we went from needing to be able to talk about um, education and formation in real time to needing now to figure out how to deliver that online, which at our school, we were already doing a lot of online stuff, but it's really become even more press um, important to be able to help leaders in their context in what they're facing right in the local context to be able to um, in real time be formed. And that's what happened to theological education. And so even at the school, I went through a transition where I basically now I'm on my third startup at the school where I'm helping lead a new church leadership initiative that I just started because we wanted to give ourselves to that challenge. Um, how can we help church leaders going through change and, and navigating change well? And so I get to work on that full time now. Well, you also get to write a book on it, which is a great segue for us to talk well, about yeah, your new yeah. book, uh, Tempered Resilience, How Leaders Are Formed in the Crucible of Change. This book challenges individuals to embrace those challenging and difficult moments to better their ability to lead. You wrote, leadership, therefore, is always about the transformation and growth of people, starting with a leader to develop the resilience and adaptive capacity to wisely cut through resistance and accomplish the mission of the group. Talk to us about mm. uh, the inspiration of this book and, and why now was the time to write it. Well, you know, as I was saying, uh, for a better part of five years, I was traveling around the country talking about how to lead um, in uncharted territory. And that was before the pandemic and before everything else. The world was changing dramatically. The church's impact in the world was changing dramatically. And what I found when I would talk to people is that they would say, hey, thank you for that. Appreciate if we can get the slides. And we're not sure anybody here can actually do that. And that was that's always bad news. And then I went, so I got to do a better job of training people. And what they realized is very quickly, wise people who invited me to come said, no, it's not about training. It's about formation. One of the leaders said to me, I think I can learn to do this. I'm not sure I can survive it. And we began to talk about the need to develop the resilience to be able to continue to lead change because the most pressing and most depressing part of the change process was how your own people begin to resist the change they asked you to lead. And that became really a need for many of our leaders to, to go back and be reformed with a kind of resilience to be able to lead their own people through the change processes that now they were resisting. I kind of uh, looking back over this uh, almost calendar year of, of working through this pandemic, what do you think are the key lessons leaders should be learning through this pandemic? Well, one of the key things to learn is that there is an opportunity in the middle of crisis that we shouldn't ever miss. I mean, Winston Churchill said, you know, never waste a crisis. And sometimes we're cynical about that. But what we really mean is 
there were things revealed about ourselves and about our congregations, about our organizations, our denominations, that we should not um, overlook too quickly. I, I've often used the example that Raul Heifetz uses of, of when someone is, is wheeled into an emergency room with a heart attack, everything stops to help them survive. But the wise doctor will then say to the person after they have made it through the heart attack, okay, now let's look at the conditions that got you here. And what many of us have done in our churches is we've just said, oh my gosh, we've been in crisis. How soon can we go back to normal? When can we get back to getting back to the way it was? And that's the mistake, is if you think that the whole point of the pandemic was to survive it and just get back to normal, you'll miss the opportunity to actually look at some of the underlying issues that get raised during this moment, that if you address them, you're going to come through stronger. You're going to move from surviving to thriving. I assume to live into the metaphor of this book, you know, working with metal, uh, you took on the practice yourself and you now have massive forearms that from all that hammering you've been doing. Yeah, so it's, it's a blacksmithing metaphor. And I have I've taken exactly two beginner classes in blacksmithing so I could learn the metaphor. But I have made a really cool bottle opener and a barn hook. Nice. Nice. Uh, now there are there are thousands of leadership books out there. Uh, you have two that yeah. are in the mix. Um, but you make the argument um, that you can read all you want to about leadership. You can take a course on it. You can have conversations about it. However, true leadership is forged and experience. Take us a little deeper mm -hmm. there. Yeah. So I always say to people, you know, especially when I'm, I'm I do a lot of coaching with leaders, and oftentimes I get called when a person steps into a brand new leadership challenge and they'll ask me, hey, would you come alongside me and coach me through this? What I always say to them is this, you were an expert at what you were doing before you became a leader. And that's why you got the promotion, right? You're the if you're the best speaker, you end up becoming the pastor. If you're the best scholar, you end up becoming the dean of the school. If, you know, if you're the best salesperson, you become the sales manager, right? Even in the business world. The hard part is as soon as you become a leader, now you are actually a learner all over again, especially in a rapidly changing world. And this is hard. This is hard on your ego. It makes you in, insecure. It you know, feels vulnerable. And yet this is exactly what is needed. So the, you only start learning as a leader when you're leading. And that's why leadership feels so vulnerable is because you can, you can read all the books you want on it, including hopefully you'll read a couple of mine, but you're actually not going to learn how to do it until you actually are right in the middle of the heat of the moment, in the middle of the forge, in the middle of the crisis. What, are, what were some of the most um, challenging experiences you went through that forged stronger leadership within you? Well, so in the um, in Canoeing the Mountains, I tell the story about being in a church that really did well for a number of years. Like all of the markers that we would look at would go really well. But I found myself facing a crisis that I didn't know how to understand. How could all of our external markers, you know, the money, the attendance, the, um, the staff team building, the budget building, how could they all be going in the, in the right direction? And yet my strongest lay leaders were beginning to get burned out and drop out of ministry. Why were the very people that I wanted to work with the most resistant to working? What was about the way that I was leading that was quote unquote working that actually was not um, working well for my strong, the strongest people on my, in my congregation. And, and I didn't know what to make of that. I didn't know how to think about that. Um, and I was stuck because what I knew I couldn't do is if, I, if you keep doing the same thing, you'll get the same result. 
And what I didn't want to have was a church that is one person said after a while, this will just become Todd Bolsinger Ministries at San Clemente Presbyterian Church. It's becoming more and more about you. And, and I actually didn't know how to make it less about me. <laughs> I mean, I feel embarrassed to admit that now, but the way I was shaped as a leader was not going to work in a day that needed to be more collaborative, had more people involved, that would be more creative, more experimental, more entrepreneurial. I, I, I had to relearn to lead all over again. You wrote in the book, at times of crisis and crossroads of change, anxious relationship systems default back to what is known, believing that it is only the path of self-preservation and survival, even if it means returning to slavery. You know, mm. for almost an entire calendar year, churches have not done a lot of familiar things. So how do leaders guide the process of returning back and maybe not going back to things that weren't working before the pandemic, but, you know, we just do because that's what we've always done. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Yeah, I think it's a really helpful question, Andy. Um, I say to people, remember that the root word for familiar and the word for family are the same root word. So when you're in unfamiliar territory, you literally feel as if you are an orphan, like you've been abandoned there. It is so disoriented. So what you end up doing is saying, all I want to do is get back. I just want to go back to what is familiar. I want to go home. I want to run home to mama, right? And this is what happens in many of our churches. You have people literally saying, um, we feel so disoriented. I feel like I've lost my church. I've lost my community. I've lost my purpose. We've lost our mission. Only because it's so unfamiliar. And what has to happen at that moment is literally there needs to be an increase of relational connection and a clarity of purpose and mission that enables you to say, okay, that in a different day, in a different world, how are we going to continue to uh, live out our mission and continue to grow as a community, even if we're not going to go back to the way it was before? Um, what is it from the, the most essential things from our past that we're going to take with us as we uh, lean into a new future? And for nearly a year, many ministers have um, had to take on responsibilities typically shared among church mm -hmm. leaders. You know, I can't even begin to name the things pastor friends of mine have added to their weekly to-do mm -hmm. list as a result of, you know, oh, people God. literally not coming to church for almost a year. Um, you wrote, adaptive change only occurs when the work is given back to the people. Mm -hmm. So mm -hmm. what does that need to look like when we return to whatever this new normal is going to be? Yeah, yeah. So, so one of the first things that we need to do is we need to spend a lot of time talking about the reason why we are connected to each other. What is our, what is our big why, as, as one author writes? What is our purpose? What's our, the other way I like to think about it is like, what is the gift that we offer to our community? And what's our charism, as the Catholics would say? And the more we get people gathered around that, I am committed to this purpose, this mission, this gift, this being a reality even more than I'm committed to our property or to our denominational affiliation or to my history, or the more we're gathered around that big why, you'll find the people who really do share the mission with you. And those are your partners. Regardless of what their title is, whether they're elders or deacons or historical members, the people who share the values and the mission and the charism, they're your partners. 
And you gather those people together and then you ask the question, so in this changing world, what does that look like for us to be faithful to that mission? What does it look like for us to apply our gifts and our values toward the pain of our neighbors so that they, we might reveal the presence of God? And it's a resetting, really, of the reason for the church's existence that can be incredibly energizing. But as you said, you can't do that and keep doing everything you did in the past. You have to have time and energy to do that. Um, it, to use the metaphor from my first book, you know, if you run out of water, you can't keep paddling harder. You know, I have to drop the canoes so that you can now begin to cross mountains. And you don't want to cross a mountain carrying a canoe on your back. I actually had somebody in leadership development when I was using your book said, uh, well, we'll just destroy the canoes and, and build a prop plane. That's the easiest way to get over the mountains. <laughs> yeah, well, there you go. If you can figure that one out, good. There you go. Turn, turn all those old canoes into a prop plane. That's yeah. it. Yeah. You know, um, as we as we look at this concept of giving things back to people, um, I think there's a lot of anxious leaders out there that worry about if many of their people are going to come back. So, you know, mm -hmm. how, how do you approach giving things back? How do you invite people back into the process when really church yeah. has been a remote experience for a year now? Yeah, 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 yeah. That's a great question. I think one of the things is you have to, you have to be clear of what you're inviting people back to. So, so one of the things that I that I've done with um, I now last year in 2020 I spoke to uh, I, we I, we added it up we spoke to over um, something like 25,000 pastors and leaders on Zoom calls and every time I would ask the same question what are some of the underlying conditions that you are discovering about your church during this crisis just kind of like the underlying conditions that COVID reveals right um, what are some of the things you found and almost everyone says we have a crisis of discipleship. We have a crisis of community, we have a crisis of leadership development, and we have a crisis of prophetic voice. We don't know how to, we have not been shaped for deep discipleship, deep connection, extensive leadership, wise prophetic um, uh, articulation in the, light, in the light of social injustice. So if, you, if you, those are the underlying issues, this is your moment to address those things. What you're inviting people into as you're saying, we're going to give the work back to the people. We're going to give this work back. We're not going to give the work of trying to figure out um, how to run programs people aren't interested in or how to, how to quickly um, make decisions about how fast we open our sanctuary. We're going to actually come back and work on these bigger issues and then ask, what are the property we need? What are the buildings we need? What are the structures we need? And if you can keep your attention by giving your best people back to your most important problems, then you're going to keep um, being able to make decisions about what we can let go as we go. We need to pause to tell you about one of our annual sponsors, Baptist Seminary of Kentucky. BSK's Flourish Center has an exciting opportunity for youth leaders. Is your youth program at your church led by a lay leader who would love some youth ministry education but isn't able to complete a full master's degree? Introduction to Youth Ministry and Essential Topics in Youth Ministry are two workshops that are currently being offered online for youth leaders taught by experienced CBF youth ministers. Essential Topics in Youth Ministry includes six sessions and is only $50. The course begins on April 13th at 7 p.m. on Zoom. 
Videos are already pre-recorded for all six sessions for Introduction to Youth Ministry and are available now for just $25. Visit flourish.bsk.edu to register today. You wrote, adaptive leadership is not finding a new inspiring vision, but framing an original or enduring vision of an organization mm-hmm. that allows everyone to see new compelling future for their beloved organization that is worth sacrifice yeah. and commitment. What does yeah. that look like practically? Well, so, um, so, so some of the ways I talk about this is this way. So um, my grandfather's name is Guido Evangelisti. That, that's his name. I'm, I'm Italian on my mother's side, as you can tell. My grandfather came to the United States in 1917 um, because he was fleeing conscription into World War I. When he came to the United States, he, he literally went to Ellis Island, made himself clear across the country. Not my grandmother. They had an Italian restaurant. They passed on their values to their family. We knew that the story of my immigrant family was, was built around two things, education and family. We are going to, my grandfather, who only had an eighth grade education, so believed in education that his two daughters, two of his daughters got master's degrees back in the 50s or 60s. My grandfather wouldn't let his wife, my grandmother, drive a car, but his daughters could get master's degrees. And he so believed that family was built around family suppers. So now three generations later, we are a family deeply committed to education and all of his great grandchildren um, all know the same family recipes and are deeply committed to the same um, kind of Sunday dinners that he used to have. What's interesting about my grandfather is that he died when he was 60 and I never knew him. And I tell that story because the enduring values were more important even than his own presence. And what really what churches need to do is go back and tell the story that inspired the earliest generations and recover the values that are at the heart of our movement and of our denomination, of our church, and then make those values adapted for the new day. So I often say my grandfather died of a heart attack because you can't eat the way old Italians ate and live much past 60. And as a guy who's now pushing 57, um, I don't eat the way my grandfather ate. Our family meals have a lot more vegetables than he did, but we do have family meals, <laughs> and the, and we are really committed to family suppers. They just have had to adapt for a different goal. My goal is that someday I'd like to see my grandchildren. And I think if we can keep thinking about the way churches need to keep recovering their core purpose for being and then adapt that into the future, how does that core purpose for being offer a gift to the pain of the world that gives us a reason to keep changing oh what i wouldn't give for a family style italian meal right now mm, well someday we'll get together and i'll make you my rigatoni <laughs> yeah, that, sounds, that sounds excellent um you go on to write resilience requires creativity and innovation to find an adaptive solution amid an intractable problem without violating our core values and beliefs Uh, You know, so many church vision, mission, and core values are written by a small leadership group asking the church to adopt them as their own. So how do we create a capacity for developing shared mission in which we have creativity and innovation from amid the entire congregation? Yeah, actually, that. so, so you just nailed probably the single biggest problem talking about core values is that people actually don't talk about their actual values. They talk about their aspirational values. 
what they do is they look at each other and say, you know what we should do? And the problem with that is that there's a lot of things we should do or could do. The most likely changes are people saying, this is what we know we want to do and we want, and we have, we need help to do it well. So the way you do that is by doing what we just did a minute ago. You tell stories. I actually coach whole groups of the consulting process that we do starts with having people gather and tell the stories about the church that are the most inspiring, right down to why did you say yes to be part of this church? Why did you stop church shopping? Why did you start coming here? What was it about this place that attracted you? And when you listen to people talk about why they've given their lives to a community, you start actually getting at their actual values. And now you say, these are the values that we have to apply to the mission that God is doing in the world. This is our unique gift. We're not every, every, there's every church has their different ways of being. Here's ours. And here's our reason for being. And that becomes really a, a, a very freeing and focusing experience for a congregation. Going back to the metaphor of the book, uh, you talk about working, heating, holding, hammering, hewing, and tempering. What's the most challenging step in this process? Hmm, that's a great question. I haven't been asked that. I still think the most challenging part is the very first part. It's the heating. And what I mean by heating is, um, you know, my dad used to like to quote Harry Truman, you know, if you can't stand the heat, stay out of the kitchen. And what I tell leaders is the kitchen isn't hot enough. Um, to really be transformed, you need to actually put yourself into the furnace. <laughs> and what I mean by that is the furnace of deep self-reflection. The, the wise, resilient leader is the leader who's willing to be honest before God and then honest for their people about the way that they need to keep being transformed. It's, it's a vulnerable leadership because that vulnerability is what's required to become an adaptive, resilient leader. If you start by defending yourself, um, you're like when they gave us a piece of steel and we put it in the furnace. And if you put it in the furnace until it gets to 700 degrees, It'll burn the skin off your hands, but you can't form it into anything. It actually has to get to 2,000 degrees to where it's practically molten and oozy in order to be shaped. And I think the hardest part for most leaders is the experience of how vulnerable leadership feels. They thought that when they got the title that they would be kind of bulletproof and that they would have uh, enough you know, credibility in people's eyes to, that they realize this, no, it's incredibly vulnerable, really transformational leadership is vulnerable. And that vulnerability is the starting place and part of the most difficult place. What step in the process takes the longest? Hmm. Well, I think for most people, um, what happens is, is once they feel vulnerable, their next, the next step becomes really important, which is um, the vulnerability of leadership requires the security of relationships. <laughs> And sometimes what takes longest is for many leaders, by the time they've gotten to a place where they are in a position of leadership, they've gotten pretty disconnected from their, their they've begun to be a solo practitioner, or they think they're the solo pastor, or they're the lone CEO or something. And really what you have to do is cultivate a really thick, heavy, I call it the anvil of relationships, that big steel anvil that holds the molten steel. And that what you need is you need partners, you need mentors, you need friends. You need all those relationships um, for all of your life, for all of your leadership. You need people who share the mission with you. Those are your partners. And you need people who care about you even more than the mission. Those are your friends. I always say that my, the, my partners care about my, the mission. My friends care about me. 
my friends are the people who, when they, they say, hey, I saw you got a book out, congratulations. I go, great, would you like a copy? They go, no, I'm not interested at all. <laughs> but congratulations for you, right? But what you also need is mentors who are people who care deeply about you. I mean, obviously my mentors care deeply about me so that I can be faithful to my mission. And the mentors are the ones that sit in the middle. And those are the spiritual directors and the coaches and the therapists. And, and that, that's, that's really the place where I spend most of my time with leaders these days. I'm, I'm in that category most of the time. But every leader needs to develop this thick, heavy anvil of relationships of partners, mentors, and friends in order to be able to be held, held securely enough in the vulnerability of leadership so that you can continue to be shaped as God needs you to be shaped. You know, I think this pandemic has been um, certainly the first time in my uh, over 20 years of vocational ministry, and maybe for many people that I know, even mentors, it's probably been one of the most challenging situation that any mm -hmm. church leader has has faced. You know, mm -hmm. of course, there are plenty of examples we can go further back, but just in, in our lifetime. And, huh. and I think about the... It's, it's the type of crisis where typically if you have crisis at work, you can leave, you can go home and it's done for the day, you know, but there's something about pastoral leadership that, uh, and then this pandemic is you, you leave the office if you're even at the office and you go home and you've got your own life to worry about. If you've got a family, your, your family's life to worry about. Oh, by the way, if, if it wasn't always a worry for the church to say financially solvent, you've got that to worry about while you're also worrying about your church members that could be losing their jobs because of this pandemic. It, it's kind of an all-encompassing, horrible experience to, to go through as a leader. And I think about like, yes, this has shaped and formed me. And when this is done, I'm going to be good if we don't have something like this for a long time. So I guess my, my yeah. question I'm getting yeah. to is looking at this process that you've laid out, is this a cyclical process uh, or is this mm. something that really leaders just have to go through once and experience and then they're good to go? Mm. Well, see, I, I would think it's, it's neither cyclical, cyclical or nor is it one time. It is the practice of your life. Um, so, so think of it this way. When, when I first became a Christian, they said, they said to me, if you want to be a follower of Jesus, you are going to need to have some practices in your life. You're going to need to uh, pray every day, read the Bible every day, go to church every week. Those, those were really important to me to understand what it meant to follow Jesus. When I became a, a pastor, praying a bit every day and reading a bit of scripture every day was not nearly enough. I needed my life to be much more anchored in deep prayer, especially for my congregation, and in deep study of scripture, hours of scripture. It just became part of my life. I think that in the same way, we are going to be, for at least the next generation, maybe longer, in the midst of tremendous upheaval and change. The church is going through a, a watershed moment of transformation that was begun before the pandemic. The, the shift from a Christendom world to a post-Christendom world where church was in the center of culture with privilege and power is now we are seeing the last throes of resistance about that. It is changing. And so because of that, we're gonna need to have practices of formation to be able to be resilient leaders. They're gonna need to be part of what we do. And part of why we are so exhausted today is that we were not trained for that. We were not prepared to be, um, to be people who literally are always leading people through faithful change. 
developing the adaptive capacity of ourselves and the diverse of our people. Um, I had a pastor, I was in Scotland, and I had an older minister look at me and say, all day long you've been calling me a leader. I'm not a leader. I'm a minister. I got into this because I want to minister to people. I don't want to lead them. I want to serve them. And I thought, to, and I said to him, when you got into ministry a few decades ago, that is all they needed you to be, a parish chaplain. Today, every congregation needs you to lead them faithfully in the mission of God. That is a change. And that's going to require us to be formed in different ways and to develop um, different capacities that, that will, will make this more a part of who we are. Maybe not to, to necessarily be a, a pessimist here, but do you think out of this pandemic, we're going to see a lot of ministers walk away from this vocation and never come back? Well, we already have. Yeah, we, we already have. It's, I, I do think so. I think, so I would say that, you know, one of the hardest parts about the pandemic is everybody I know who got into ministry, they love God and they love people and they want to spend their life introducing the people they love to the God they love. That's, that's what you want to do. And mostly they want to do that by teaching them the scriptures that they love, right? Now we're actually in a place where what we need is every congregation to be a mission outpost in a world where people are longing for the gospel. And that means that we are, that a pastor is more of a mission leader than a chaplain. And that means for those who signed up for the work of teacher or chaplain, which is really good work and continues to be part of our repertoire, there's a disappointment to it. And then they'll have to ask yourself the question, am I called to do this? And I do think there'll be some folks who will say, no, I'm not called to pastoral leadership. Um, I will serve in the life of a church. I'll teach the Bible. I'll care for people. I'll be a good lay person, but I really am not called to this kind of leadership. I understand that. I do. Um, but I do think that one of the parts that we're having to see is there needs to be more and more people who are equipped for the capacity for navigating faithful change in a disruptive world. And it, it's really the reason why I literally stepped out of my senior VP role at Fuller and started the church leadership initiative because we saw this as something that needed to give our full attention to as a seminary, that we need to be able to form church leaders for faithful change in a disruptive and changing world. So how do we replicate this type of leadership development um, within the church organization? Well, that actually is um, the kind of the bulk of the work that, that I'm doing. What, I, what I've realized is I can coach leaders and I can help them develop their adaptive capacity. That's the, that's the capacity to learn, face losses, and to adapt your core values faithfully to a changing world. That, that's the core process. What you also need to be able to do is lead that in your congregation. So I think there is a growing overlap between discipleship and adaptive capacity building, which is faithful application of following Jesus in a rapidly changing world where we hold on to our core values, the most important things about what it means to be a follower of Jesus, but we acknowledge that many of our practices were built for a day that was a lot less, lot less disruptive than it is today. And it's gonna require some different kinds of qualities and characteristics that are built into our discipleship. They see this book being used by local church leaders. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm, yeah, yeah. The point of this book is really, I mean, the point of temporary resilience is to be able to give to a church leader, 
here's a conversation you can have. And even there's a study guide that goes with it with your leadership team about the about the what I call the tempered resilience, the wise, strong, flexible, convicted leadership needed to overcome the understandable resistance of our own people. What's your greatest hope for the book? Oh, that it is useful to leaders who want to faithfully lead change, that it gives hope. That it, um, I talk about hewing hope. That it might, the, the book is built on the metaphor of Dr. Martin Luther King's speech, where he talks about, with this faith, we'll be able to hew out of a mountain of despair, stones of hope. And what he meant was he, he literally had just laid out a vision in that incredible speech in front of Lincoln Memorial of Isaiah 40, believing that God is going to transform the world with this faith. We'll be able to hew out of a mountain of stair stones of hope. And my goal, my intention, and my dream for the for the book is that it will help leaders hew stones of hope out of despair. That'll help them understand how to transform resistance into something new and beautiful where God's presence is seen in the world. Well, last time we had you on, I asked you what you were up to next, and uh, you you begin to sketch out for me what would then become um, this book. So what are you working on next? I'm actually right now working on um, the, the whole question of how do you develop what forms of discipleship that are necessary for a rapidly changing world? How do you, how do you where is the overlap between discipleship and adaptive capacity building? Um, how do you develop the capacity of your congregation? It's not just the leaders, but it has to be all the people. And so that's the next step. Well, it sounds like we need to have you on for the really rarefied era of being part of the three for club. That's that's rare territory there to have somebody on three times. Well, that would be a privilege indeed. So Well, we'll just do it over a, a pasta and, and whatever Italian dishes that we can share together. So Exactly, exactly. That would be good. Well, if you want to stay connected with Todd, follow him on social media. Of course, check out his work at uh, fuller.edu. Uh, go out and purchase Tempered Resilience wherever books are sold. Uh, Todd, thank you for inviting us into the burning hot forge to become resilient leaders that the world needs for the transforming power of the gospel. Yeah, yeah, indeed. Andy, can I just tell people if they want to get in touch with me, all they got to do is text the word change, change, to 66866. That actually gets you a link to our work at the Dupree Center, a church leadership initiative, Change 66866. This podcast is presented to you by McAfee School of Theology at Mercer University, who exists to train ministers who inspire the church and the world to imagine, discover, and create God's future. Located in Atlanta, Georgia, the McAfee School of Theology offers doctoral and master's degree programs, including a fully online Master of Divinity degree, the only fully online MDiv offered by a national research university. You can visit their webpage, theology.mercer.edu, to learn more about their programs and scholarships. Okay, that's it. That's our conversation. If you want more, be sure to subscribe to CBF's podcast on all major platforms, including iTunes, Spotify, SoundCloud, and Google Podcasts. Don't forget to like and share this episode on your favorite social media platforms. Be sure to support our annual sponsors by visiting their websites. Again, that's the Baptist Seminary of Kentucky, the Center for Congregational Health, and McAvee School of Theology's Doctorate of Ministry program. 
Check out cbf.net for more information about our church starters, field personnel, advocacy work, and much more. Oh, and I don't think we've mentioned this, that you should join the listener community at cbf.net backslash podcast support.